saved American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can yeah. still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For April 1st, 2020, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nilder. Well, this is the first podcast I've produced since sequestering myself at home on the advice of my employer and my state government to try to avoid contracting the coronavirus. It's been a weird couple of weeks, to be honest, but in a way, having the structure of needing to produce a podcast every two weeks has actually been helpful in keeping me active and productive. I know that this is a difficult time for all of us, and I hope you all are likewise avoiding interaction with people outside your home and staying safe and healthy until this pandemic passes. Now, we understand that our listeners are far more isolated than usual as we practice the social distancing needed to end this pandemic. Recognizing that our audience is now working and learning from home, we want to do our part to make the complete episodes of our podcast as accessible as possible because it's the right thing to do. So we are offering a special COVID-19 response discount. For regular subscribers to our annual plan, we're offering the first month free. For students who could already subscribe at a 50% discount, we have deepened the discount. They can now subscribe for only $2 a month for the next 12 months. And for companies with a workforce at home and universities with students limited to classes online, we're offering 10% off any group license. You can find the details of these new membership options on our website at energytransitionshow.com. Just click on the COVID-19 response button on our menu bar or go directly to energytransitionshow.com slash c19 hyphen response. We've noticed increased downloads of our show and more traffic on our website during this tragic pandemic, indicating that many of you are turning to the Energy Transition Show as a trusted source of information, even amidst unprecedented uncertainty. We wish you and your loved ones safety and security during this extremely difficult time, and we look forward to following the global energy transition with you through this crisis and into the years ahead. Now, this isn't an April Fool's joke, but we do have something a little different for you today. As longtime listeners to this show know, we promise our subscribers two shows a month or 24 shows a year. But we actually produce a show every two weeks or 26 shows a year. For those extra two shows a year, we usually offer a little something extra, what they call lanyap in New Orleans, and do something a little different, which we usually run in front of the paywall so that subscribers and non-subscribers alike can enjoy the full show. This is one of those shows. For the first time ever, we're doing a joint show with the hosts of the Interchange podcast, Stephen Lacey and Shale Khan. The Interchange is the sister podcast to the Energy Gang, and both are produced by Green Tech Media, which is now part of Wood McKenzie, an energy consultancy. Both the Energy Gang and the Interchange podcasts have been going for years, and were among the first professional energy podcasts, and I've listened to both of them many, many times. Indeed, yours truly was a guest on the Energy Gang several times before we even started the Energy Transition Show. So when Stephen suggested that we do a show together and deliver it simultaneously to our respective audiences, I quickly agreed, because it seemed like a good way to expose our respective audiences to another closely aligned show. 
In this three-way discussion, we had an unscripted conversation about two main topics. For the first topic, we each identified a question about the energy transition that was unanswered five years ago, but that seems answered, or at least a lot clearer today. And for the second topic, we raised a new question that has emerged over the past five years, which also remains unanswered today. I thought it was a fun way to approach some of the interesting questions in energy transition, and I hope that our listeners will enjoy hearing Stephen and Shale's perspectives, as well as hearing my perspective in a somewhat different way, where I'm more in the role of a participant in the discussion and less in the role of a host. Then in the new segment of this episode, we'll note the prospects for battery storage systems this year. We'll review a bald-faced move to bail out the coal industry in Indiana. We'll hail a significant coal plant closure in New York, and we'll take a hard look at the damage done to the global oil sector this year. But before we go to the discussion, I just want to give a big shout out to the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, or NREL, a division of the U.S. Department of Energy, which is our latest site licensee. We've had numerous guests from NREL on the show in the past, so I'm very pleased indeed to finally be able to make the show available to all the fine researchers over there. I think NREL is nothing short of a national treasure, as it regularly turns out some of the best research on energy transition produced in the U.S. So welcome to all the folks at NREL. I'm thrilled to have you on board. And now, without further ado, let's go to our conversation with Stephen Lacey and Shale Khan of the Interchange Podcast, recorded March 13, 2020. Well, here we are, gentlemen, just three energy wonks practicing their social distancing. (laughs) Although when you get into these topics nearly as deeply as we do, I guess a lot of people distance themselves naturally from us. Does that happen to you, Chris? Oh, yeah, I'm a huge hit at parties. (laughs) So we're all here practicing this distancing. I'm wondering, what is the wonkiest thing a person could do while in isolation? Shale, what about you? That seems like a setup. It's podcasting, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, isn't that the obvious answer? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah. It's a good social distancing strategy, both because you actually have to be remote to do it in the first place, and also because it then causes other people to want to socially distance themselves from you. So it's like a double whammy effect. <laughs> yeah, just go find a utility supply closet, buy a microphone and a mixer, get some acoustic panels from Musician's Friend, and voila, you're ready to have remote conversations without ever having to step out of the house. You are a podcaster now. (laughs) All right, gentlemen. In this episode, we're going to explore a couple simple questions, questions that may offer some complex answers. And they are, what is an unknown about the energy transition that we now know? Or a question that was unanswered five years ago that we have since answered. And what is a question that has emerged in 2020 that is still unanswered? And I think before we get there, I wanna explore what we mean when we talk about the energy transition itself. So Chris, you've got a show appropriately titled The Energy Transition Show. We often use that phrase or a variation of that phrase on our show. So I'm curious how you actually define that transition. Like what are we transitioning to? Well, in my view, it's a transition on a lot of different levels. I mean, on on the energy supply side, I think it primarily means moving to renewables, moving to wind and solar and geothermal and eventually maybe marine technology or what have you. I know that there are a fair number of people out there who think that nuclear is probably part of that solution set in the future. I'm not so convinced of that, but it could be. What it certainly means is that we need to get away from 
fuels on the supply side that actually produce carbon emissions. So it's a low carbon transition. However, it shakes out, probably going to be renewable, but for you, it's got to be low carbon. Well, it definitely is. It has to be low carbon. I mean, there's really no point in doing it in many ways <laughs> if it isn't. And then I think the energy transition also implies a lot of other things besides just swapping fuels on the supply side. It implies moving toward more flexible behavior on the demand side. It implies different strategies for grid balancing. It implies other kinds of technologies like microgrids that are grid interactive, but can be isolating as well. So if your local hospital or fire station or police station or community center needs to do its own sort of grid distancing, <laughs> in addition to your social distancing, it can do that. So I think it's a whole big umbrella of things on the demand side and the supply side and just sort of the balancing and management aspects as well. So Shia, when you use that phrase, the energy transition, what exactly are you referring to? What do you have imagined in your head that we're transitioning to? I think of it as the often used like three D's and an E, which is decarbonization, decentralization, digitization, and electrification. I somehow want to add like resilience in there too, maybe. So three D's and E and an R. The actual etymology of the term, Chris, you'll probably know this better than me because you named your show after it, but it's born out of the German energy venda, right? That's true, yeah. And so that was a German policy initiative that was introduced, what, over a decade ago now? Yeah, that's right. And originally, the context of it was about getting off of nuclear power for the Germans. Right, but it was still about decarbonization. And then we've sort of like expanded the definition, I think, since then. It's still primarily about decarbonization. But when we started talking about things like smart grid, like that kind of fits into the energy transition, but wasn't necessarily a part of the original conception of it. At least that's how I remember it. I think the umbrella term energy transition, the umbrella has gotten bigger <laughs> over time to cover more things. But actually in Germany, the Energiewende was a movement that predated carbon action, and it was about getting off of nuclear power. So I thought it was actually something much further back and deeper than the German energy transition. So there's this Canadian energy expert scientist, Vaslav Smil, who has written so many books on historic energy transitions, who has written about the transition from hydropower to biomass, from biomass to coal, and then from fossil fuels to renewables. And, you know, I think his thinking on this issue has really guided our conventional understanding of energy transitions. And the question that he often raises is how fast is this energy transition going to happen? And if you look at historical changes in the way that we've used energy, it's happened over many, many, many decades. And so I think he looks forward and says, well, this transition to a low carbon society is going to take just as long. And for me, when I think about what the energy transition means, I think about not just what we're getting to, but the speed as well. And if we are speeding up, what are the factors that contribute to that acceleration. And Chris, I know that you are very familiar with Vaslav Smil's work. He's a great historian. You have really disputed a lot of his findings about this current transition that we're in. What do you think about that question about the speed? Well, I mean, I think the evidence is 
extremely clear and indisputable that this energy transition is moving at a much faster pace than transitions in the past. So I think Smeal is wrong in his assertions that this next energy transition or the one that we're in now is going to take just as long as the ones in the past, fundamentally. All right. So this brings us to the two questions that we're trying to answer about the energy transition. So if we think about a question about this transition five years ago that we didn't know the answer to that is now answered, what comes to mind? Chris, we'll go to you first. What do you think was unanswered five years ago that we can definitively answer today? I don't know about definitively answer, but one thing that was, I think, very unclear five years ago was how high of a share renewables can get on the grid power supply without requiring an equal amount of battery storage. You know, there was this view, depending on how far back you go, that the grid couldn't possibly accommodate more than 5% renewables, that that kind of variable supply. And then, well, basically the Germans proved that you could, and then it went to 10, and then it went to 15, and so on. And even five years ago, many people were very skeptical that renewables could get to over 30% share of grid power supply without requiring an equal amount of battery storage. And I just think... We've seen plenty of evidence, particularly on the German grid, that grid balancing was never an issue. System balancing has always been done at the system level, not at the generator level. No generator of any kind is up 100% of the time. In fact, if you're a system operator, the most severe risk to grid balancing is when a big nuclear plant goes down, because you're talking like two gigawatts of power that could disappear. And when that happens, the rest of the grid compensates for it. And nobody expects... A nuclear plant, for example, to be 100% oversized in case one reactor goes down and the other one can pick up, or nobody expects the nuclear plant to provide storage equivalent to 100% of its output. But that is precisely the standard that was usually put forward for renewables having to meet, oftentimes by nuclear proponents. <laughs> so, in other words, all the resources, both on the supply side and on the demand side, as well as resources that can act like both supply and demand resources, like storage, should be able to show up and participate on the grid whenever they have value to offer at a competitive price. It's up to the system operator to make it all balance out. It's not up to individual generators. So, the idea that we were grappling with five years ago about the importance of quote-unquote baseload was just false. Baseload is just a way of describing how big inflexible generators like coal and nuclear plants operate. It's not a grid need. It's not even a term that system operators use. It was only ever really used by people who wanted to justify the existence of these big coal and nuclear plants and put down the opportunity for renewables and energy transition more generally. This is a super interesting one because I think five years ago you saw all these studies come out. I think one was a definitive one from the National Renewable Energy Laboratory showing that you could get 80% of renewables on grids and manage the grid effectively and do it pretty cost effectively. Yeah. And we saw a lot of academic studies come out showing this was possible, but the reality of markets was lagging behind those findings. And then you started to see regional grid operators saying, oh, yeah, we can definitely handle this much renewables. In fact, we're surprised at how much wind energy we can handle. And of course, in the Midwest, they'd been doing that for decades. But in the Southeast, you saw the, the grid operator come out and say, oh, we can double the amount of wind we have. And all of a sudden, utilities and grid operators started making this shift. As you watch those announcements and watch what people 
were saying out in the field. What jumped out at you that showed, yes, this is happening, it's possible here in the U.S. beyond Germany, which had already proven that to be the case? I think that's an interesting one in that it's clearly true that the conventional wisdom around how high a penetration of renewables the grid can easily handle, either from a reliability perspective or a cost perspective, has evolved over the past five years upward. I'm not sure I feel like that question is nearly answered, though, Chris. Like, it's clear that we can get more renewables on the grid and not have a huge grid impact. On the other hand, we are seeing all these issues as we get to these higher penetrations today. Like, look at curtailment in California this year in the spring, which is when we see the most of it. It's like a by far a record for curtailment. We just don't know where that's heading yet. So not to say that the grid can't get much beyond this, and this actually dovetails well with what my question that's answered is going to be, but this to me feels like a question that like continues to evolve, I would say. Well, I mean, you can have curtailment, but is that a problem? Like if you can get to 80% renewables with a lot of curtailment, does that show that you can't get to 80% renewables? No, it doesn't. Curtailment may or may not even be a problem. We've already seen several studies to show that you can actually have a large amount of curtailment and still have an economic case for building and owning and operating these plants. It sort of depends on the cost. See, the argument, I think you've moved the goalpost there, and I think a lot of other people are trying to move the goalpost too in terms of what renewables can do or what benchmark should we use when we're saying whether or not energy transition is successful. Because five years ago, it wasn't a question of economics and it wasn't a question of curtailment. It was a question of system balancing. The argument was when you get to renewables over X percent, the grid is going to fall flat. We're going to have blackouts. That was the assertion. And so if you can operate a grid at a high share of renewables without having blackouts and keeping your system balanced, then I think that point has been falsified. It doesn't matter how much curtailment you have. Aha. Well, I think that the technical question is answered, but it seems to me a perfectly reasonable question to ask about the economic viability of spilling over all that wind and solar. Certainly, there's a lot you can do with it. Well, okay. But again, questioning the economic viability is a different set of goalposts. Right. Right. So now I'm understanding your asked and answered question better, which is the reliability question associated with higher penetration of renewable energy, which I actually agree with you has largely been answered. And interestingly, also over the past five years, we've discovered or, you know, it has been uncovered all these different ways in which renewables can actually contribute to reliability. First Solar, I would say, has done a bunch of really valuable work on this, figuring out how you can deliver ancillary services with just a PV plant, for example. So, yeah, I think that on the technical question, I think I will agree with you that what was a big question five years ago probably isn't today. So, Shale, what was your question that you thought was unanswered five years ago that is now answered? Well, it's actually closely related, but through a different lens. What I was going to say is that five years ago, there was a question as to what level of clean energy, let's say, was palatable as a long-term mandate in the United States. So just snap back to 2015. I'm currently looking at a map of renewable portfolio standards, state RPS standards as of 2015. And the majority of them at that point were setting targets in the like 
10 to 20 or 25 percent renewable energy by 2020 or 2025. There are a couple exceptions. The really ambitious states like California at that point already had a 50 percent standard by 2030. Hawaii already had its 100 percent standard, but let's set that apart. Vermont was at 75% by 2032, but the vast majority of states either had no RPS or had an RPS that topped out at 25% or something like that. And then snap forward five years. And what's interesting about what has happened since then is that a whole bunch of states have uh, not just incrementally increased their long-term standards, but have just jumped them straight up to 100%. Sometimes it's 100% clean, not 100% renewable, et cetera, et cetera. But the question of like, what was the highest number that states were going to be willing to go to, I think is now sort of answered because there's this herd mentality toward 100% something. We just saw it in Virginia a week ago. We have it in Colorado and New Mexico and California and Nevada. There are bills introduced in places like Pennsylvania. New York has it. It's becoming pretty commonplace. And I've been impressed both by the number of states that are picking it up pretty quickly, but also just that it was a big jump. Like it wasn't incremental. You would have imagined all these states go from 25 to 30 to 40 to 50 to 60 or some version of that. And instead they went from like 30 to 100, which is interesting. Yeah. So if you think back to five years ago, Shale, what did you think the limit would be? I mean, what were the political limitations in your eyes? You know, it's not unrelated to what Chris was saying. I think that there was, one, a fair amount of worry about the reliability impact of getting to high penetrations of clean energy and probably, you know, economic impact as well. I think the other thing, truthfully, that that states have figured out is they could set longer term targets. So these 100% standards are largely for 2040 to 2050. So they have a longer time to figure it out. But, you know, at the time, I think it would have been viewed outside Hawaii and maybe California it would have been viewed as pretty aggressive to say we're going to get to 100% clean energy. I mean, also during that period, five years is a long time in the history of renewables and batteries, and the cost of all those things has fallen so much that it seems a lot more plausible now than it did then. Stephen, I hope you came up with something different, (laughs) since Chris and I were obviously thinking pretty closely along the same lines. It is. We're actually along a spectrum here. So mine is about the levers of change. If we think about what is influencing states, localities, some national governments to get to that 100% clean energy or 100% renewable target. I've been thinking through what the levers of change are actually going to be. And so five years ago, we were consumed by the Paris Climate Agreement. And we all knew it was inadequate to meet climate change, but it raised this question that a lot of people have been asking over the previous decade, which is, have we reached this new era of international cooperation to make it possible to grapple with the climate problem and accelerate the transition? And since then, I think we've answered a couple questions. One is that, no, we have not moved in that direction. We've moved in the opposite direction on the international stage. I mean, we've got more fragmentation. We've got a breakdown of international alliances. We have a stalling of the negotiation process. We have this general malaise on the international side. And so this idea that was so 
common over the last 10 or 15 years that we were going to get this international carbon price that somehow governments would coalesce together and create a framework for solving climate change. Like that's not going to happen and it's not going to improve anytime soon, in my opinion. But what we have answered is that in the post-Paris Agreement environment, it's caused this cascading series of factors that are going to drive the transition and only accelerate it. So the activists, for example, who are super angry and applying meaningful pressure on companies, local governments and other politicians are responding to that lack of policy. It's the changing economics that are like boosting these efforts from people on the ground, making it easier to force change and force 100% clean energy or 100% renewable energy targets. It's now the biggest players in the financial system who are under pressure from those folks who are really angry and are worried about their social license and their long-term risks under climate change that are finally like moving money out of fossil fuels and starting to make investment decisions that really matter. And then these players are kind of creating the conditions for change that weren't there five years ago or that were only starting to emerge. And so then we have the Paris Climate Agreement. And although it's toothless in many ways, it has acted as this guide in the absence of federal policy. So a lot of localities and companies and others are saying, okay, we'll use this as a framework for moving forward on climate change. And I think that gets us closer to the major targets that you just outlined, Shale. So for me, it's very chaotic. It's messy. The levers of change are unlike anything we've seen in the past with these slower moving transitions. And I think that's really become more clear over the last five years. So wait, state it in like two sentences. So what's the question that was an open question five years ago that's answered now? Is it like who will drive the transition? Yes. Will we have a cohesive political framework on the national and international scale that will help accelerate the energy transition? The answer is definitely no. But there are all these other forces that were not as powerful before that are starting to have a much greater impact. Ooh, that's aggressive to say that's answered. You don't think it's possible that that could change, that the cohesive international framework could reemerge? Well, we'll have to see at the end of this year. I think that the international negotiations have been working up to this point where they're going to revisit what's in the Paris Agreement, and we could see some change. But I'm pretty convinced that we're not going to see much meaningful on the international stage for some time. You know, I think there's an elephant in the room there sort of implied in your question and your answer, Stephen, and that you're really talking about politics when you're talking about these international agreements and then you're talking about the pushback from activists and so on. That's all in the realm of politics. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I think those sort of high-level political targets as represented in the Paris Agreement or in the previous ones, like you can go to Kyoto and Copenhagen and so on and so forth, the reason those did not succeed is because of interference and resistance from the losers of the energy transition. Mm. Let's just really be clear about this. It's not about policy levers. It's about the very deliberate and determined opposition of people who are going to lose money on the fossil fuel side and to some extent on the nuclear side as well. And that's the problem. So let's just be super clear about the actors here and what they're doing. Whereas I think what you didn't mention as one of the really powerful forces that has in fact advanced progress and continues to advance progress is not political. It's the market. Mm. 
It's the fact that these technologies over the past five years in particular have gotten considerably farther down their learning curves than I think anybody five years ago expected them to. They've gotten cheaper. They've gotten more effective. It's become more practical from an economic standpoint to deploy them at scale. And that continues to be, I think, a very significant driver going forward. If you ask me today, is it politics and international agreements that's going to have the biggest effect on addressing climate change over the next 10 years, or is it the market? I'm definitely going to answer the market. So I totally agree with you, Chris, but I would add something extra, and that is I think those market forces are enabling a lot of the pressure campaigns to get more power, whether it be forcing an individual utility or forcing a local government to make changes. I think those changing economics make a lot of the political forces that much more powerful, and it gives environmental groups greater momentum. So if you look at, for example, the city of Glendale outside of Los Angeles, they had this massive peaking power plant, this 262 megawatt natural gas power plant that was super old. The local utility there was going to just repower the natural gas power plant. And a lot of the locals stepped up and said, absolutely not. Let's look at alternatives. And maybe five years ago, 10 years ago, they wouldn't have been taken seriously. But the local utility, Glendale Water and Power, was able to bring in outside modelers. And they showed that they could save a ton of money by bringing in renewables demand response and you know a couple reciprocating engines to burn a little bit of natural gas. And they could totally make up for that local gas power plant. And that's the sort of change that we're seeing. It's a combination of the political forces getting boosted by those changing market dynamics. And I think that's really powerful. And that wasn't the case in the same way five years ago. I do agree with you that the market is driving most of the change as it stands today and that market changes have enabled activists and others to be more effective. I guess I'm unwilling to state this as an answered question because I think it's actually pretty hard to predict what happens on the global stage. I mean, look at the time we're in right now. Like, Who knows <laughs> what's going to be happening in the global context six weeks from now, let alone in a year, let alone in four years. So I think it's a little premature to basically discount the possibility that the global coalition will actually come together on some climate-related international agreement that has teeth and real impact. I don't know yet. So I definitely agree with you on the trend line. I just don't think it's an answered question. So Chris, I know you had two answers to this question. What's your second one? The second one was about this idea that wind and solar will eat their own lunch, quote unquote. And what does that mean exactly? Well, I think the assertion was that by virtue of their intrinsic technological nature, that the revenues that wind and solar earn in electricity markets will decline steadily as their market share grows, and that that would ultimately result in not being able to build more renewables because the economic case wouldn't be there. And I know you guys did at least one show about that. As I recall, you might have even had Jesse Jenkins on the show to talk about it, referencing the, the MIT Future of Solar study. And I think you also even had Jamie Mandel, my colleague there at RMI, on the interchange back in December 2015 to talk about this issue. You know, I think what we've actually seen is so far there's no 
really compelling evidence that that's occurring. So far, wind and solar projects are still getting built and they're still driving down overall electricity costs. But contra the assertion of five years ago, we're actually finding uses for all that cheap power. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) So I remember doing a rather deep critique of that study and of the associated literature that it referenced five years ago and thinking, no, this is just wrong. We can say that overlaying wind and solar onto a power market that was designed around conventional thermal generators can have some perverse outcomes. And the right solution is to redesign the markets to be appropriate to the generation technologies of the future, which harkens back to my previous point, the question that I think is now answered, which is that system balancing is done at the system level and that we should be able to allow all sorts of resources to show up and do whatever they can do on the grid. And so I think this idea that wind and solar, the economic case for it, will be destroyed by their own market penetration is just wrong. And I don't see any evidence that that's actually happening or that it will happen. Well, this is a good one for Shale because he was talking a lot about this. I think we had three different shows on this topic, covering it from a few different angles. And Shale, you were really focused in on this potential problem. What do you think of Chris's assessment and how did it play out based on what you were thinking three, four, five years ago. I always thought this debate, it's similar to, in my mind, the like innovation versus deployment debate that people have in our circles too, which is like, I sort of think at the end of the day, everybody might actually agree. And then they just use language that really frustrates the other side. So like in this case, what I think the literature was trying to say I mean, this is going to sound self-evident, right? But like, this is what the data was showing. Wind and solar being intermittent and non-dispatchable, as you add more and more to them to the grid, given the existing market structure and constraints of the grid, the more of them you add, the less value that the incremental kilowatt hour from the next one has, period. Not that means that it will destroy the economics of wind and solar, not that it means you can't get to higher penetrations, just that there is deflating marginal value of the next resource because they're all generating at the same time. And at some point you get past the point where you actually need a whole lot more of them. And I believe that to still be true. However, what isn't true is that it means the death knell of wind and solar in the markets because it turns out that as a result of that, what you need in the market is either some sort of structural market reform like you were describing or a combination of other flexible resources that either allow you to shift the profile of demand according to the generation profile of the resource or shift the actual generation itself via battery or just provide ramping capacity for the peak periods. All the different types of flexibility that we're all familiar with are the solution here. But I don't think that makes it untrue that on their own, wind and solar, the higher you get in terms of penetration, the lower the value of the next kilowatt hour from them. I mean, I think it's true that as we deploy more and more renewables, it's driving down the cost of grid power. I think there's quite a bit of evidence to show that renewables essentially are fundamentally deflationary. But I don't see that as a problem. 
<laughs> which, which really was the point of those studies, that it's a problem. I don't see that as a problem. And again, I think it's very possible that you could have a lot of curtailment, for example, which is the kind of outcome that you might expect to have here. And it still makes sense to keep building plants, and it still makes sense to keep increasing the market share. So I will disagree with your assertion that five years ago they were just saying that renewables are inherently deflationary. They were saying that eventually, if the wind and solar costs don't keep falling, that they could not continue to increase share. I don't think that's been shown at all. Yeah, I think that's right. That is definitely what a lot of folks were saying. It feels to me, though, that the technical discussion is a bit different than it was five years ago as well, because conventional lithium-ion battery storage is just so much better and cheaper. We now have a potential fix on that front. I think people who are structuring contracts understand the market conditions a lot better, and we're seeing changes in how people are thinking about long-term contracts. And then we had this bigger discussion about what to do with excess wind and solar, whether it be shifting massive amounts of electric vehicle charging to when we have more renewable power generated or whether it be finding ways to create stuff like green hydrogen that is still not happening in a major way, but certainly the technical discussions are a lot more clear and a lot more serious than they were five years ago. So there are a couple new elements to this discussion that were not there five years ago. In some ways, it's sort of like what's changed is that the context in which we were thinking about renewables in electricity five years ago was like adding wind and solar into the existing paradigm of electricity generation. And then when you think of it through that lens, that's where you can view it as a problem. But what it turns out, it seems like it's starting to happen is that the market itself and all the other resources are getting oriented around the fact that the predominant resources in many of these cases will be wind and solar. And so everything else is sort of flowing out from that. And then it's not a problem. It's just the needs of the grid, just like how if you would have said, well, there's going to be a peak every evening at 8 p.m., that's not a problem. It just means you need peaking resources. So maybe that's the right lens through which to view it. Yeah, on the supply side, and it also means that there's opportunity on the demand side, which is increasingly becoming a focus. Like I spend my days at Rocky Mountain Institute thinking about how we manage and integrate electric vehicle charging infrastructure on the grid, how that affects the grid, how you manage it for the best benefit of the grid, and so on. And we do have strategies to try to steer that load away from the neck of the duck curve, to steer it away from that sort of 6 to 8 p.m. window, and to try to guide that charging behavior into the valley of the load profile, which flattens out total demand on the grid and allows you to optimize the use of all the grid resources and ultimately to drive down the unit cost of electricity for all ratepayers because you've done a successful integration. And my colleagues at RMI are doing very similar things on the building side with managing HVAC, with managing water heaters and so on. So I think the flexibility of the load is becoming more and more of an important factor here. So let's go to the second half of the conversation. The second question is, what is something that we haven't answered yet? What is a question that has emerged in the last five years that is still unanswerable? And Shale, we'll go to you on this one first. All right. Well, I picked this one because it is front of mind and because I suspect Chris will have 
opinions and or answers for me, which is the question that I think is looming currently and is a real question in my mind is when will the demand curve for electric vehicles in the United States bend upward significantly? The context here is that for all of our excitement and hype around electric vehicles, the actual EV sales in the United States are pretty tepid, I would say. In 2019, for example, electric vehicle sales were basically flat. If you include plug-in hybrids, the number was down year over year. If it's outside of Tesla in particular, I mean, Tesla was growing. This is the Model 3 year. If you just say electric vehicles outside of Tesla, the market sales were down significantly. We're still under 2% of new vehicle sales. So there's lots of reasons to point toward that changing in the near future. Tons of new models coming out, the OEMs pushing electric vehicles for the first time, doing big marketing campaigns and Super Bowl ads and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, we just do not see it in the data yet in terms of what's actually getting sold. So my big question for the next five years is, will we see a significant increase in EV sales in the United States? When will it happen and how fast? I think the long-term trajectory is actually in some ways easier to predict than the short term. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think people who don't follow this market really closely will look at the kind of data that you've just talked about here and just assume, oh, well, consumers are just rejecting them. Consumers just don't like them or it's just not a good product or whatever. But as you get deeper into the questions, as I spend all my days at RMI doing, (laughs) you start to see where the real sticking points are. And I don't think the advantages of EVs over ICE vehicles or of the viability of the vehicles themselves or even consumer preference are the problems at all. The problems are, particularly in the U.S. market, is that, well, first of all, dealers have not been stocking vehicles on their lots. So if you're a consumer and you want to buy an EV and you walk into your dealer, you may not actually be able to even buy a vehicle because they just don't have it on the lot. Or maybe the salesperson at the dealership doesn't know anything about it. I mean, there's been all these horror stories about people walking in saying, I want to buy a Chevy Bolt. And they're like, you know, I want to take a test drive. And it's like, oh, the battery's flat. You know, nobody at the dealership kept it charged up and ready to go. Or the salesperson says, yeah, you know, those aren't really so good. Can I sell you a Chevy Malibu? Because they're getting more of a commission to sell the Malibu. So there's a lot of problems just in getting the vehicles out to the dealerships. There's the fact that the automakers are still pretty much losing money on every unit they sell. So they're not pushing them despite their public pronouncements to the contrary. And so there's all sorts of problems in just being able to buy one. And then once you have one, there's the problem of maybe insufficient charging infrastructure. For people who live in a single-family home or have a garage, a place to park it and charge it up, not a problem. For the roughly 40% of America who lives in multi-unit dwellings, who maybe doesn't have a dedicated parking space at their apartment building or their condo unit with a charging station available or that could be installed there, maybe they're down in some cement bunker parking garage underneath the building and there's no way to even get easy power supply there. The lack of charging infrastructure continues to be a real barrier for a lot of people in terms of just making them comfortable with the idea of buying an EV for the first time, whereas they can drive around all day long and see gas stations. So 
These are issues that I think it's really important for us to understand in terms of why EV adoption rates haven't been growing the way that we might have hoped in the U.S. But again, it's important to note that that's the U.S. market. Elsewhere in the world, EVs are still growing very strongly, depending on each country's context in terms of gasoline prices and policy and so on and so forth. And in many places in the world now, we have bans on ICE vehicles, on internal combustion engine vehicles that are looming, that continues to drive EV sales. So while it's true that EV adoption rate was not as strong in 2019 X Tesla in the US, that is not at all the complete picture. And the usual assumptions about that being a phenomenon related to consumer preferences, that's just not the problem. Right. I agree with all of that, but it still leaves me with this question specific to the US again. I would add consumer understanding element to the limiting EV adoption, right? Range anxiety, whether imagined or real appears to be a factor, at least in the surveys that I've seen. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of consumer education that needs to be done for sure. Right. Of course, if the vehicles were actually on the lot and the dealership salespeople actually knew something about them and could sell them. Yeah. <laughs> look, a real salesman educates their customer about the product and tries to sell it to them, right? Like if you're not doing that, it shouldn't be anyone's surprise that customers aren't buying them. <laughs> well, right. So they're not unrelated, but you put those three things together. We've got this issue at dealerships, dealers stocking and pushing electric vehicles. We've got a consumer understanding question. And then we've got an infrastructure question around EV charging, especially for people who are not living in single family homes. And I guess what I'm looking forward to the next five years here and thinking like, will we Will we solve any of these? I think the EV infrastructure one is maybe the most straightforward to solve, which is build a bunch of public EV charging, find solutions for multifamily units like that. I feel like we are behind and we need to build a lot more infrastructure, but it's maybe the most straightforward answer. I don't know. Do you feel like there's an answer coming to the dealership issue and the consumer understanding issue? Well, I think it almost goes without saying that if the automakers were actually making significant profits on these vehicles, that they would be stocking them on their lots and trying to sell them. So the question then really is, when is it profitable to make EVs? And I think Bloomberg New Energy Finance probably does the best work in this area that I know of. And they're projecting that these vehicles are going to get to price parity, at least on a sticker price basis, with ICE vehicles, you know, depending on the class and it varies by country and all that kind of stuff. But sort of 2023, 2024 timeframe is what they're looking at for light duty vehicles. And that really is strictly a function of declining lithium ion battery prices. So to answer your question about EV adoption, really, you have to look at the price curve for lithium ion batteries. Can I clarify something? This is a bit of a tangent, but I've actually wondered this and you, you might know the answer. So I've heard that too. So uh, EVs maybe hit sticker price parity sometime in the next three, four or five years, depending on the, the model. But that feels to me like it's maybe a slightly separate question from why are automakers not making money on EVs, right? Like what what is what is stopping the automakers from having profitable EV models? Well, they cost too much and that relates to the cost of the battery pack. Right. But so the 
the idea is that they the cost of the battery pack will fall so much that they will be able to drop the retail price down to parity with the ICE vehicle and simultaneously earn a larger margin on the vehicle by 2023, 2024? Is that like what the implicit assumption is? I think so. I mean, at least that's my presumption. I don't think any of the automakers have quite disclosed what their actual costs are publicly so that people like you and me could actually say definitively at what point they're going to make what kind of margin. So I don't think we actually have that data. But I think that when we do see those costs fall to the point where you're at sticker price parity with ICE, you have to think that there's going to be a better profit opportunity then. How much? I don't know. Yeah. Well, I agree with you on everything that you said. I think to me, it makes me a little nervous about the next few years in EV adoption in the United States. Because I just worry about what'll happen if sales stay flat and if those problems don't get solved while all these new models arrive. And maybe prices come down, but maybe let's just say they don't come down as much as we think, or let's just say there's supply chain issues, who knows? Like, do we run the risk of kind of like failure to launch? with EVs in the United States. A counter argument to that is that because, as you pointed out, EV adoption is much stronger in the rest of the world, it's not like if the US market doesn't pick up substantially, all the auto OEMs will stop making electric vehicles because they have to serve the global market anyway. So maybe not, but I don't know. There's something lingering in the back of my head that's like, we really can't sit on our laurels here because the indicators aren't super strong in the US. I don't know of anybody working in this space who's complacent about it or who doesn't think that there's still a challenge. I think everybody is working very hard to try to solve these problems and to make EVs become the first choice for consumers. One way of looking at your question is to just look at what the automakers are doing. In the past six months, we've seen GM and Volkswagen, for example, both make very strong commitments to electrification, you know, in the $30 billion per company kind of range. That's not the kind of thing that an automaker is going to do if they expect sales to remain flat, if they expect to have no profit margin on these vehicles, if they expect consumers to continue to be averse to buying their EVs. So you have to look at those kind of commitments, I think, as a strong indication that they think this is moving forward. Yep. I think that's right. So Chris, what unanswered question or unanswered questions have popped up for you this year about how the energy transition will unfold? Well, again, I had two here, but because we were just talking about electric vehicles, I'll go to the one that had to do with that, which is, does transportation electrification mean that we're going to just convert all the existing kinds of vehicles to electric with some autonomous and ride-sharing thrown in? I think that's what most people sort of think about when they think about electrification is just to take all the existing topology of vehicles and roads and everything and just convert it to electric. And I think we don't actually know how transportation electrification is going to evolve. I just laugh when I hear these confident pronouncements about how quickly autonomous vehicles will arrive, for example, or how much impact on congestion and emissions ride-sharing services will have in the future, especially over the long term. Those kinds of projections 
I just think it's absurd to even make them when EVs are 2% of sales and 1% of vehicles on the road in the U.S. So, yeah, go ahead and tell us how confident you are about when transportation electrification is going to look like two decades from now, you know? (laughs) So, what we know is that We've seen a sudden explosion of all sorts of crazy micro-mobility solutions hit the streets, unannounced, without policy support, without anyone's regulatory approval, just in the past couple of years. Here I'm talking about the electric scooters like Lime and Bird, electric bicycles, electric skateboards, one-wheels. I mean, just two days ago, I saw a guy riding a one-wheel past my house. I was like, huh, (laughs) look at that. Nobody is factoring these kinds of new disruptive technologies into their transportation electrification forecasts. That kind of innovation, those new modes of mobility, isn't really uh, part of the mental model that people have when they think about vehicle electrification. So in addition to that, we now have these completely new kinds of vehicles, passenger vehicles, like the Citroen Ami, this tiny little electric car that was just announced, which is designed to be as cheap as possible. It isn't very fast, and it looks, as the article I read said, like a washing machine, but it only costs like $6,600. Or the Cruise Origin, co-developed with GM and Honda, which is autonomous from the design, like it has no driver controls. And it's, quote, the transportation system you'd build if you could start from scratch, according to Cruise CEO Dan Amon, who's a former president of General Motors. So, you know, that vehicle is designed for ride hailing. You know, it's a little four to six passenger shuttle. And I could imagine an entirely different topology of mobility than what we have now, where it's not about either taking your little scooter or your passenger vehicle to like a park and ride and then getting on a bus or a train. Maybe instead we have these little purpose-built four to six passenger autonomous vehicles running in little fixed routes around different neighborhoods. And and instead of getting in one vehicle and having it take you point to point, you'd hop from one vehicle to another along a route as guided by your smartphone or the car. So I just think that, you know, when we think about the future of electrifying transportation, we have to keep our minds open that there are going to be these new modes of mobility, there's new topologies of routes and opportunities of getting around that don't exist today. It's not just about electrifying vehicles. I totally agree with you. I have this conversation all the time with people who are focused exclusively on the vehicle electrification question, where I say, like, look, there's this whole world of mobility and the mobility transformation is super dynamic, super unpredictable, some of it happening very fast. You described the micromobility thing, which is probably the perfect example of that. Everybody uses that acronym CASE, Connected, Autonomous, Shared, and Electric. So electric being one of the four like levers of transformation. And that doesn't even include like micromobility and other forms of urban mobility. Not to mention, like, if you want to draw the picture out even further, people talking about electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft and all this kind of stuff. It is really hard to predict. And I agree with you that who knows, it could totally change the topology of our streets. It could change how we get around. What I think is a challenge, given that, uncertainty is the practical reality in the electric vehicle world of like, we do need to place some infrastructure in the ground that is going to have a relatively long lifetime, like an electric vehicle charging station. And if, especially if you have a business model that is reliant on 
a high utilization rate for that electric vehicle charger, you got to at least have some conviction around the future of transportation out, say, 10 years, just to be able to sort of figure out what your predicted cash flows are going to be from your station. So on one hand, like there's this almost inherently unknowable transportation future. And on the other hand, there's this like immediate need to build infrastructure. And I think those two things clash against each other a little bit, but the result is largely that you kind of just have to assume something close to the status quo in terms of the overall topology of our getting around the world when you are putting infrastructure in place today, because it'd be so hard to just be like, well, I think we're going to have a bunch of autonomous vehicles and they're mostly going to be shared. And so they're all going to charge at fleet depots in 10 years. And so we don't need this public EV charger on the side of this highway anymore or whatever it might be. So I'm curious how you think about the like dynamic of this uncertainty versus the practical reality of what we have to do today. Yeah. Well, I, I actually spend quite a lot of time presenting to various kinds of audiences, regulatory commissions and legislators and conferences and so on, on this question of how we deploy charging infrastructure and what role utilities should play and so on and so forth. And my standard talking points on this question are that we should, first of all, just drive within the range of our headlights. So don't get too crazy about building something that you think is going to be used 20 years from now. Build something that you're pretty sure is going to be used within the next five years. And try to avoid building tomorrow's stranded assets today as much as you can, which involves a certain amount of forecasting, but it also just means to be careful about your capital spending and to just to allow things to evolve. So for example, we just did a report on the cost of deploying charging infrastructure and what all the different aspects of that are, like what it costs to buy components, what it costs to buy services, what it costs to actually do the installation. And what we advise there is that if you're going to deploy, especially a public high-speed charging station, that you should future-proof it a little bit. Put in the expansion capacity so that you don't have to climb a pole and replace a distribution transformer twice. You don't have to open a trench and put in conduit twice. That you can actually build in some expansion capacity for every site without making the full capital commitment that you think you're going to need, say, 10 years from now, today. So I think that's what it really comes down to is giving yourself very deliberately a path to expansion, but being careful about your capital deployment sort of year to year. So, Stephen, what was the question that you had that has emerged and remains unanswered today? All right. Well, you both really lived up to the mission of our respective shows, which is to go super deep on one particular subject. But I'm going to pull us back and tap directly into the news cycle, into the questions raised about coronavirus. So over the last 12 years, we know that the recession, the financial collapse from the 2007-2008 time frame really played an important role in the development of renewables, particularly here in the United States. I mean, it was how we passed that major economic stimulus that had the beefed up loan program and long-term tax credits and a bunch of other stuff in there that benefited renewables. And I think had a pretty big role in the evolution of the transition here in the electric sector in the United States. And so the question for me is, as this coronavirus pandemic unfolds, 
we inevitably see a policy response to the economic problems that we're going to see. Whether or not we see a global recession, I don't know. But certainly governments are going to be putting together some kind of stimulus packages, depending on how bad this gets. It could go one of two ways. Either it forces governments to impose less stringent environmental regulations because they want to like ease economic pressures. I can imagine gas taxes going away. I can imagine people trying to create more incentives for people to consume more. Or it causes governments to try to boost economic activity through some kind of low-carbon investment. It'll probably be a combination of both. But we're at a moment now where we could see a pretty major change in the coming years because of governments trying to provide these economic stimulus packages, however this crisis plays out. And I think it will definitely shape the energy transition. (laughs) (laughs) So your question is, not what impact will coronavirus specifically have on the energy transition, but rather what impact will the policy response to the economic impact of coronavirus have on the energy transition? That's exactly it. And the reason why I brought it up is because I think that the previous policy response to the last economic collapse was really formative. And we're at a moment today when we could see something similar. And if we're talking about the next 10 years of the energy transition, this could be an important factor in either accelerating it or decelerating it. Stephen, let me push back on that a little bit. Sure. You know, hearkening back to 2008, 2009, what effect on the energy transition specifically do you think the financial market-driven collapse really had? Low interest rates were huge for financing projects. Mm -hmm. I mean, long-term low interest rates were central to building out the amount of renewables that we did. Clearly, longer-term tax incentives, particularly the tax incentive, the ITC for residential rooftop solar, played a huge role in getting us to the 1 million and beyond installations here in the United States. And then the loan program did play an important role in getting some of those large centralized renewable power plants that felt big at the time proven out. And we have since seen those projects recreated time and time again. Of course, we had some failures. We had the Kemper carbon capture and sequestration plant that was a big failure that just turned into a natural gas plant. We had the Bright Source CSP plant that turned into a natural gas plant because it didn't function properly. But it did show that we could build out these massive wind and solar projects far beyond what we thought possible. And that actually goes into influencing some of the issues that we raised earlier in the show, which was we proved that we could handle huge projects and huge amounts of renewable energy on grids, and the stimulus package assisted in that. Okay, so I think I'm hearing mainly low interest rates and the stimulus package. Yep, definitely. Okay, so on the low interest rates, I'm going to argue that there's no movement available to us on that point now. I mean, essentially, we're already at negative rates in most of the world, certainly at the mm-hmm. at the Fed discount window or the central bank level. We're getting kind of deep into negative territory, sort of negative two, negative three percent already in some countries. And we've already heard from people like Christine Lagarde saying, look, monetary stimulus is not going to help us deal with this anymore. Those bullets are spent. So I think on the stimulus package side, I think it's really clear that that 
stimulus package existed because of the mentality of the Obama administration wanting to go after these opportunities and specifically Mm -hmm. looking for quote-unquote shovel-ready projects. I don't see that kind of mentality in the Trump administration by even a remote stretch. In fact, they want to go the opposite direction. We heard over the past week this idea floated that they're going to offer some new stimulus package to the oil and gas industry, which is so absurd on the face of it that I think the political pushback on that was very comprehensive. And I don't think that idea is going to move forward. I mean, it's absurd. You know, the reason why oil and gas prices have been so low, the reason why the fracking companies have not been able to actually be profitable for several years running now is because of overproduction. So why would you stuff more money into that and try to make them produce more? It only exacerbates the problem. It's an absurd idea, but it makes perfect sense if you live in the Trump administration, which is famously very intimately tied to the oil and gas industry and the coal industry. Maybe it makes sense to offer some political favors at this point in the form of the stimulus, but it just makes no sense from an energy policy standpoint. These are great points, Chris, and that's why I think that this is an unanswered question, and I think that's all very reasonable pushback. And certainly we won't get anything meaningful on the monetary policy side, but To be very crude about this, crises like this offer an opportunity for people to put in all sorts of pet projects. And you can stuff in all kinds of regulatory changes and tax credits and incentives that may not otherwise get movement. And right now, the Senate has been considering this slew of energy bills. And who knows what related to clean tech stuff could get into an economic stimulus. And that's just what happened in 2008. I mean, Everybody ran to the table and they all got what they needed into the bill because they frantically wanted to pass something. And that's how politics works. And so it can surprise us what actually gets in there. But your pushback is completely reasonable. I don't think that the U.S. is somehow going to magically build this renewable energy economic stimulus. With that said, we could get some interesting stuff in there and other countries who are far ahead of this stuff, if they're impacted, could go further. I think definitely on the interest rate thing, I mean, it is true. We have nowhere down to go. And it's not just because of coronavirus. Like there was some lingering worries about the economy anyway that were sort of causing interest rates to remain suppressed. But it has always been or has for the past, you know, X number of years since interest rates became low in the first place and renewables started growing. That has always been a looming risk to the growth of renewables. They perform very well in a low interest rate environment and We haven't really seen them perform in a high interest rate environment. So I do think that that matters in the sense that like it seems pretty clear we are going to remain in a low interest rate environment for the foreseeable future. But for coronavirus and the the economic results thereof, I'm not sure we would have been as certain of that. So I do think that matters a little bit. I mean, it's hard to imagine the counterfactual exactly, but but now at least we can have more confidence around that, I would suspect. I have to ask myself whether there's a mismatch in the timeframes here, because I think when you're talking about effects on the energy transition, you're largely talking about investment decisions that happen over a long time horizon, particularly for things like utility scale wind and solar or other sorts of major grid innovations or building stock investments or even the transition to electric vehicles or building charging infrastructure. These are all high dollar things that happen over a period of years or even decades. Whereas coronavirus, eh, we don't really know how long this is going to continue to weigh on 
markets. We don't really know how it's going to impact supply chains. This could be something that we feel like we've got a handle on and we're kind of getting back to normal by summer. It could be something that we are still struggling with and we're nowhere near recovering from a year from now. We don't really know. But even so, I think the effect of coronavirus is going to be something that happens over a much shorter time frame than the kind of time frames that really matter in terms of deployments of things related to the energy transition. Well, if a month or two from now we're still sitting here in isolation, I know that I'll call up my co-host Shale and listen to his voice, and then I'll turn on my phone and download the Energy Transition Show so that I have Chris Nelder's voice in my ears as well. So I know you'll both be with me. (laughs) I will definitely be there. (laughs) Okay, so let's round the discussion out, Chris. I know that you came prepared with two answers. So what's your second answer to this series of unanswered questions? So yeah, my other unanswered question is how much seasonal storage we will need when we get to a high renewables grid. Oh, interesting. What is that question exactly and how has it changed? Well, it's been asserted that unless we have economic storage options that can be deployed at scale, it's going to limit the penetration of renewables on the grid because unless there are economic and scalable alternatives in storage, that we won't really be able to accommodate higher percentages of renewables on the grid. And I just don't think we know particularly on the seasonal storage side. Like we know that we have scalable, economically attractive solutions for sort of grid services provided by storage on the minute or hourly or even daily kind of scale. But the assertion has been made that the energy transition will be limited to getting renewables up to maybe 60% or 70% or pick your number. And it can't go any higher until we have seasonal storage solutions. And some very absurd assertions have been made about this. For example, unless we have storage that can provide 100% of grid power for six continuous weeks for the entire country, that renewables can't grow anymore. I just think we don't know, and there's no way to know how much seasonal storage we'll need. Everybody suffers from recency bias. And so when they think storage, they typically only think about lithium-ion batteries at today's cost. What they don't think about is all the other kinds of storage that already exist or what other kinds of storage may exist in the future that don't exist today, you know, something that's currently just on a lab somewhere, or how costs for today's storage solutions will fall in the future. So they draw these dumb conclusions about how much storage we'll need in the future and what it will cost specifically for the seasonal issue. My guess is that we're actually going to have a lot of thermal solutions in the future that address the seasonality issue, which currently nobody is even really talking about. And here I'm thinking about things like underground thermal energy storage, phase change materials, lots more heat pumps, more insulation. There's all sorts of things we can do just in terms of managing heat, which oftentimes is the actual need in terms of seasonal storage. You don't need seasonal storage to provide grid electricity as much as you need seasonal storage to provide heat or to provide cooling. And so I think we're underestimating the kinds of solutions that will come to the fore in the next couple of years. And I think we're underestimating what share of 
The alleged seasonal storage need will be provided by non-battery solutions. Well, I definitely agree with you that we we do not know how much, if any, seasonal storage we will need at high penetrations of renewable energy at scale. The way that I think about it is that what we do know is that high penetrations of renewable energy will cause a seasonal differential in generation. You know, you get way more solar generation in the summer than you do in the winter, et cetera. However, I don't think we know exactly what the solution set is going to be that ultimately solves that. I mean, you just laid out a couple of possibilities. If you want to add to that, like high voltage transmission build out can help solve that. You have a wider aperture of generation profiles. You doing something with the excess renewables in the season when you're overproducing either to then provide seasonal storage. So like hydrogen power to gas to power would be one option there. Or just like if we actually decide we need a lot of green hydrogen and have other uses for it, then you can just overbuild renewables and it doesn't look like overbuilding because you're not actually curtailing in the high production seasons. Can we shift load? Are there going to be seasonal sources of load? Plus all the heat stuff. It's just really, really hard to predict. I guess the one thing I would question is, will we have an answer to that in five years? It feels to me like that is a long-term question. We're going to spend a few decades figuring that out. Yeah, I think that's true. And that's one more reason to take anyone's assertions about how a lack of seasonal storage will necessarily inhibit the energy transition very skeptically. Well, we've covered some really important ground here. Chris, do you consider yourself an optimist when you think about the scope of the transition? Because we've raised a lot of like unknowns. I think we're all very clearly realizing, as most people are, that this transition is not happening as fast as it should. But it's also happening in surprising ways that will take a lot of incumbents by surprise. Where do you fall on the optimistic or pessimistic spectrum? Well, I mean, the very fact that I've now invested four and a half years into this show, I think, makes me an optimist. (laughs) (laughs) And I think I'm going to continue doing this show probably for the rest of my working life. So, yeah, I'm definitely an optimist about the potential for energy transition. I try not to make hard predictions about when X is going to get to Y in terms of costs or penetration level or whatever. But I do frequently look at these projections and these models that say things like wind and solar can't get to X percent until we have storage, until costs get to a certain level or whatever, very skeptically. And I look closely at the assumptions in those models, and it's usually not too hard to find the flaw. So I think the reason we're doing all of this, let's keep it in mind, is climate change first and foremost. That's not a problem that's going away. Dealing with that problem is not optional. We must proceed with the energy transition. There is no alternative to proceeding with the energy transition. How far we're going to get, how successful we're going to be, how much pain we're going to feel or avoid because we succeeded with it remains to be seen. But there's no question that it must proceed. This is a project of essential existential importance to the human race. And so why not be optimistic about what we can do? Just to kind of look at the inverse side of that, what's the resistance to it? The resistance to it is almost entirely about who stands to lose money 
because they're on the wrong side of history, because they're on the wrong side of the transition, because they're the ones that need to be put out of business and disrupted. And that immediately brings you into a very political context. And I think all you have to do is look at the progress of energy transition over the past couple of years. Look at how quickly we're phasing out coal plants in this country. Look at how expectations for coal plant construction in the developing world have faded over the past couple of five years or so. Look at how quickly we're adopting new kinds of technologies across the board and the declining cost of those technologies. And why not? Why not be optimistic about it? All right, Chris Nelder, this was a lot of fun. Thanks for jumping on the line with us and doing a crossover episode. Love your show and your analysis, and I really enjoyed this. Yeah, I did too. Thank you, Stephen, for suggesting that we do a joint show. I thought it was kind of a lark, a little something different, kind of fun. And I hope that our listeners will go check out your show and vice versa. And Shale, thanks to you. Thanks for a good conversation and figuring out this energy transition we're in the middle of. Likewise. Thanks, guys. Take care. Okay. Right on. Thanks, guys. That was Stephen Lacey and Shale Khan of the Interchange Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this little diversion from our usual fare and found some valuable perspectives on these questions about the past and the future of energy transition. As a longtime listener to their podcast, I thought it was fun to talk with Stephen and Shale for a change, and I hope that their audience will likewise find a little something new and different in hearing my point of view, particularly as we all hunker down in our homes, waiting for the pandemic to pass and hoping to escape its ravages. These are very trying days for a lot of us, and I know that with a threat like a pandemic knocking on our doors, even discussing these questions can seem sort of trivial. I've had my own challenges in just trying to maintain a normal schedule and turn out my work. But I hope that this show can also serve as an intellectual outlet for our listeners who by now are probably feeling overwhelmed and looking for anything to listen to other than the constant drumbeat of terrible news about the virus. So please stay healthy, everyone. Practice social distancing, wash your hands, and keep listening to this podcast because this too shall pass and there will be much, much more to come on energy transition. Know that I too am hunkered down here in my home at Energy Transition Show World Headquarters, physically alone, but not alone at all in reality, as I think of you all, and reach out with my heart and mind to all of you, sending these words across the internet and into your ears. We're all in this together, and the project of energy transition continues. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. According to the Energy Storage Association, a Washington, D.C.-based trade group, battery storage projects are expected to surge in the U.S. this year. Annual capacity additions this year are expected to more than double the pace of 2019, with more than 1 gigawatt being deployed for the first time ever, and more than 3 gigawatts getting built next year. According to S&P Global Market Intelligence, lithium-ion batteries co-located with gas plants and solar farms in the southwest will account for the bulk of planned additions with other large-scale projects underway in Florida, Hawaii, New York, Oregon, and other states. But California is, as ever, leading the pack as it seeks to use battery storage projects to support or replace gas-fired power plants. The largest project is the 182.5 megawatt, 730 megawatt hour, Tesla Moss Landing Battery Energy Storage Project, in which Tesla will be building one of the world's largest battery systems at a PG&E substation in Moss Landing, California. 
Longtime listeners may recall that in 2017, Tesla built what was then the largest battery system in the world in Australia, the Hornsdale Power Reserve, a 100-megawatt, 129-megawatt-hour battery plant, which supports the adjacent Hornsdale wind farm and provides numerous grid services across the Australian grid. Check out the news in episode 59 for more on that. Item 2. On March 10th, Republicans in the Indiana state legislature nakedly moved to bail out its failing coal mining industry. In recent years, utilities across Indiana have been rapidly retiring aging coal-fired power plants in favor of cheaper and cleaner alternatives, such as solar, wind, and natural gas. But Republicans are closely allied with the coal industry and have sought to keep the plants operating no matter what, even when they are uneconomic to run. Under House Bill 1414, utilities must give the Indiana Utilities Regulatory Commission at least three years' notice before retiring a legacy resource, such as a coal plant, and it may not retire or otherwise transfer the ownership of such a plant without receiving regulatory approval. It also sets aside grant money for coal workers who have lost their jobs. In order to get the bill passed in both houses of the legislature, Republicans had to remove Democratic representatives from the conference committee discussions and suspend the normal rules of voting in order to rush the bill forward. The bill now heads to Governor Holcomb to sign it into law. Item 3. The last operating coal-fired power plant in New York State shut down in March. Located in the northwest corner of New York, about an hour's drive from Buffalo, the Somerset Operating Company plant and its 44 remaining workers now face an uncertain future. Governor Cuomo recently issued rules that would make it easier to bypass zoning rules and other local regulations to build renewable energy projects there, including wind and solar projects. But the local conservative population appears to be hostile to those projects. See the link in the show notes to the full story about this plant, but it does highlight that even with the best of intentions and a just transition package, including support from the Department of Labor and providing job fairs and placement services, coal plant workers often still resist the transition away from coal because they may lack the education or qualifications to seek alternate employment that would pay similarly high wages. And finally, item four. To wrap up the news for this episode, I'm going to offer an overview of some of the damage that's been wreaked in the oil patch lately, because I know that a lot of our listeners have questions about it. I'll start with prices. After spending three straight years bouncing around between roughly $55 and $75 a barrel, the European oil benchmark, Brent, crashed from $66 in mid-January to under $30 in mid-March as the coronavirus took a toll on global oil demand and talks between Russia and OPEC on production cuts broke down, launching an all-out price war between Russia and Saudi Arabia. The combined impact of surging supply and crashing demand conspired to result in the worst two-week performance for oil and gas on record, with the U.S. benchmark, West Texas Intermediate, settling at $20.37 per barrel on March 18th, after falling 57% over the course of 10 consecutive trading days. On the demand side, we don't have great qualitative data yet, but we are seeing a broad range of estimates on demand destruction that are changing daily. No doubt by the time you hear this, the numbers I'm about to give you will be obsolete, but for what it's worth, on March 15th, Bloomberg cited traders speculating that oil demand could fall by more than the 2.6 million barrel a day decline we experienced in the Great Recession of 2009. IHS Market, a consultancy, estimates that global oil demand could fall by 5 million barrels a day in 2020. On March 16th, Goldman Sachs said that oil consumption is already down by 8 million barrels a day. 
Pierre Andurand of oil hedge fund Andurand Capital Management, as well as Trafigura, one of the world's top independent oil traders, estimate that oil demand could fall by 10 million barrels a day for a period of time, which would easily eclipse any previous demand shock. More recent speculation says 12 million barrels a day of demand could quickly disappear. Over on the supply side, at under $30 a barrel for the U.S. benchmark, West Texas Intermediate, many U.S. producers, especially the frackers, would find it difficult, if not impossible, to continue operations. Goldman Sachs says that total capex from the U.S. shale industry could fall by 30%, and that U.S. oil production could fall by 1 million barrels a day between the second quarter of 2020 and the third quarter of 2021. But that could be underestimating the damage since U.S. frackers produce more like 9 million barrels a day. IHS Markets says the hit to U.S. shale producers could be closer to 2 to 4 million barrels a day over the next 18 months. However it plays out, there should be no question in anyone's mind that the coronavirus has already done lasting damage to the U.S. shale complex, and that when it recovers, it will recover into a very different kind of market and a changed world, one that I suspect will not see oil demand recover to the 100 million barrel a day level from which it fell. The price crash has also been disastrous for oil sand producers in Canada, where a benchmark blend of crude actually sank below $8 a barrel on March 18th, which renders essentially all oil sands production loss-making. But unlike the frackers in the U.S., who can start up and shut down operations pretty quickly, it's physically far more difficult to start up and shut down oil sands production for technical reasons, so it's likely that oil sands producers will simply keep operating at a loss for some months before deciding to shut in production. But the damage won't stop there. The International Energy Agency has warned that the oil price collapse could slash 85% off the revenues of vulnerable oil-producing countries, such as Nigeria, Iraq, Oman, and Ecuador, which would have wide-ranging economic and geopolitical effects. Check out our conversation with Alex Gilbert in episode 88 for more on that topic. So although demand for oil is quickly drying up, supply has not been so quick to respond, forcing producers to look for somewhere to store their unwanted product. Major oil companies, including BP and Shell, are now booking tanker ships to store crude, jet fuel, and other refined products at sea as onshore storage facilities are filled up. Even the Texas Railroad Commission, which despite its name is actually a statewide commission designed to moderate the production of oil and gas in Texas, and was the model on which OPEC was built, has finally started talking about rationing production in Texas for the first time since 1972 in an effort to constrain production and get prices back up to where producing oil can be profitable again. One commissioner has even spoken with OPEC's Secretary General about a possible internationally coordinated production cut. They're a long way from actually taking such action yet, but Bob McNally, the president of Rapidian Energy Group and a former energy advisor to President George W. Bush, thinks the lower oil prices go, the more likely a production cut is. In a recent interview with S&P Global, he said, quote, At this rate, global storage will fill up this summer, and oil prices will fall to single digits, if not negative. U.S. production, along with production in Canada, is also on the chopping block. An end to the price war between Saudi Arabia and Russia could also curtail supply and boost prices, but analysts aren't expecting that to happen anytime soon. And what does it all mean for energy transition? That remains to be seen, for we are clearly still in the early days of this pandemic. 
However, Wood Mackenzie's Valentina Kreutzschmar believes that oil and gas companies can now make better returns from investing in renewable energy than they can make by continuing to invest in oil and gas, with renewables projects looking as attractive as upstream projects at $35 a barrel. So there may actually be a shift in industry capital investment from oil and gas to wind and solar, which would actually be doubly helpful since that's what major funds and asset managers are beginning to demand around the world, as we've detailed in the news of many recent episodes of this podcast. Conversely, there's also a risk that cheap gasoline will dampen consumer interest in switching to electric vehicles, but I don't actually think that will be a significant factor just yet, because my read of the market is that not many consumers choose to switch to EVs because they're cheaper to recharge. As always, you can log into our website and see the many links to these stories in the show notes for this episode. In closing, thanks to all of you for supporting the show. Since we are entirely subscriber-supported, it could not exist without you. Be sure to check out the interview transcripts, which are typically uploaded a week or two after each episode, and our extensive show notes, which include links to all the research resources and news items for each episode. And thanks to all of you who write to share your feedback on the show and your suggestions for future shows. I am continually honored, humbled, and encouraged by the incredible email I get from you, and I want you to know that it is truly appreciated. To reach me with show feedback or ideas, just use the comment form on any show page or email me directly at chris at energytransitionshow.com. Finally, help us build our audience. People like you aren't easy to find, and we have learned that most of our subscribers discover us via word of mouth. So please tell your friends and colleagues about the show and leave us a review on iTunes, which is where most people discover new podcasts. And if you think your company, nonprofit, or university would benefit from a site license that gives everyone an annual subscription, just drop us a line. We have very competitively priced group discounts and an easy way to enroll everyone. And thank you for spreading the word. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.